I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. No Paul this week, but unlike Intel's dividend, two-thirds of us are still here. I've got Steve D with me. Uh, how's your week been, Steve? God, how long did it take you to come up with that? You never <laughs> did that on the fly. That was amazing. <laughs> Glad you enjoyed it. How are you? Uh, yeah, very well, Steve. I, this week, um, I appeared on the uh, Investor Way podcast. Uh, Sam kindly invited me on for to have a chat. So if you guys want to hear a little bit about me, this is actually part one of two. It went on that long. And uh, part two, uh, when, when that comes out, you'll be able to spot a moment. A fly flew into my mouth and my voice uh, never never quite recovered from it. I hope he's he's chopped that bit out where I was just choking for, sort of for, for, for a couple of minutes. But uh, Steve assures me that it's fair interesting i didn't know i thought it, you know it's hard to judge stuff about yourself i think the second half has got a lot more interesting content in it but uh you know i've heard only good things so far so uh, if you want to check it out it's the investor way it's podcast only so it'll have to be on your your apple your spotify or your google podcasts and uh, yeah thanks for to sam for for having us on uh stocks wise steve been a pretty naff week really uh it's the money incinerators uh Pretty much every stock in there has reported over the last couple of weeks, but there's been quite a lot this week, and they've been pretty much of a muchness. A couple of dire ones, uh, a couple of interesting ones, I suppose. A couple of those stocks are in interesting positions at the moment, um, and uh, basically that's what I'm going to run down today. I've got uh, essentially Teladoc, Etsy, and Dutch Brothers, which is I don't know if we've talked about before on the show. But, yeah, busy week for me, Steve. How about you? Busy week here as well. Um Outside of the markets, uh, the little one's not too well. He's got what the doctors are calling a middle ear infection, which uh, I've never heard of before, and I didn't realise there was such a thing, because when I look at him, he only appears to have a left ear and a right ear, so I don't even know where his middle ear is. But... Um, it took me as long as the Intel one, by the way. Uh, but he's uh, he's on a round of antibiotics. I'm sure that'll clear that up. Uh, yeah, I was looking at a couple of things, actually. It's been... It feels like a very up-and-down... Uh, sort of week for the type of stocks you have. I don't know about the ones specifically in the um, money incinerator pie. So Autodesk has been going mad. Beyond Meat has been going mad. Loads of things going up quite a lot. Loads of things coming down quite a lot. It seems like an interesting sort of time for those things. I have fewer of them than you do, and mine haven't done. The ones I have haven't actually reported this week, so they haven't done very much at all. Uh, but they've generally kind of slid a little bit as some inflation comes in that we'll talk about maybe another day because... You know, give it two weeks, there'll be another inflation report that we can uh, have a look at. Um, aside from that, it's an interesting sort of time for markets and investing, I guess. It feels like a, the new ISA season is on the horizon, and I guess we'll start thinking about what we're going to do there as the final paydays before before the new year um, come around. That'll be for a future episode, though. This time, we've been looking at earnings. I heard you on the Investor Way podcast, though. Am I right in thinking Sam is from Hull as well, that part of the world? No, I don't think so. I think Sam ah. is uh, hes out west, so I think he's... Ah, OK. I don't, I'm sure he did tell me this, but I thought he was more up Manchester way, to be honest. I thought their other guy was also Oxford-based, and I yeah, wondered yeah, whether this a was a kind of... You. Yeah, tried and trusted model of running a sort of Hull-Oxford <laughs> podcasting axis. Uh, I heard the first part of your interview, uh, the, you know, all of the part that was uh, released anyway. I liked it very much. I thought you interviewed pretty well uh, there. If anyone else is interested, go check that out. I'm looking forward to the second uh, edition. When does that come out, Steve, the second one, do you know? Well, this one wasn't meant to come out so early, but they had a little bit of a scheduling conflict, so I put it out, uh, put out a little bit early. So I would assume it'll be same time next week, but I'll wait for Sam's tweet and I'll, I'll let everybody know on Twitter and uh, uh, like I did in the YouTube community. Um, when, when it happens. Imagine having scheduling problems. I mean, I presume that means like you have more than one thing that you've recorded at any given moment. Yeah, that's definitely not something we're used to, unless it's Christmas, but I don't know if that's letting go a little secret there. 
<laughs> yeah, it's um, it's Friday 24th here. We're recording this pretty much in our last available moment. Markets are still open, so there's still time for stuff to happen. But we've let most of the week's news come in. And what a week it's been. We've had earnings all over the place. Um, we've had one of our kind of, I guess, playing footsie favourites to think about. Maybe not a favourite to own, but a favourite that we like to keep our eye on and report on and see how things are going. Teladoc has reported this week, right, Steve? It has, yeah. This is a <clears throat> this is one that I used to hold in both sides of my portfolio, but I recently took it. Uh, well, safe recently. I feel like it was fairly recently. Took it out of my main portfolio and just left it in the money incinerator pie because that name just seems to suit it uh, a, a lot mm. better. And um, I have been sort of perpetually disappointed uh, with Teladoc as it's gone on. I, I think it was very promising, and then it got still quite promising, and then it got fairly middling and then we haven't covered it for the last couple of earnings reports because it's just been on a continual a continual decline in in, in and definitely not meeting the promises that it's set but um <clears throat> no, i'll give you a quick rundown of what teledox earnings were and then you can have a think about what you think about it uh so revenue grew 15 percent year on year to 637.7 million net loss was 23.49 dollars a share which is just a bit less than what the stock trades for so again almost all of this was a markdown in that disastrous livongo merger um and there was about 31 pence worth of stock based uh, compensation as well so um, there's, there's ironically going to be some sneak profitability here when you sub those both off, um, uh, which is shown in the EBITDA figures, which were about 94.1 million. So that's up 22% year on year. Uh, guidance is what I think has sunk the stock. It fell about 9% on the news. Uh, Teladoc gave guidance of uh, 2.55 billion to 2.675 billion, which is between 7 and 11% growth. Analysts were hoping for 2.7 billion at the low point, so it's it's quite a bit under. Uh, the next quarter guide, which uh, was for 610 to 625 million in revenue, which is pretty meagre growth again. That's about nine percent. Uh, only a couple of years ago, they were telling us this would be a 25 to 30 percent growth engine for for a long period of time. So that's definitely starting to hold up. Uh, net losses were projected to be one dollar seventy five to one dollar twenty five per, per share for the full year. EBITDA of 275 to 325 million in the positive, which is good. Um, so yeah, early on this was a great growth story. I thought I thought this was a company on the cusp of sort of uh, F, uh, free cash flow, positive earnings, growing at 30 percent, had a very positive outlook, and unfortunately they've been they've been just drawing this back and back and back now, and we're now at the point where we're only expecting 10 percent growth. And I just think I feel a little bit for Kathy Wood because she's had a terrible year. She owns 12 percent of this company now, Steve. And that's actually more than BlackRock and Vanguard combined. Um, I mean, chronic care still looks really flat. That Livongo merger has been a disaster. $18 billion has just not brought anywhere near, anywhere, you know, that kind of value to, to Teladoc. BetterHelp, on the other hand, still looks like it was an excellent piece of business, but unfortunately the two don't cancel each other out. So I guess the bull side of this argument is going to be, well, what did you expect? Tech industry sacking people left, right and centre. How could Teladoc grow any more than sort of 8 or 10%? And I actually think this still needs more time. And I think contrary to the sort of ridiculous takes that I've seen on Twitter, that every time it writes down, somebody thinks it's going to go bust. Teladoc actually has a billion in cash, and it's now generating cash in most quarters. It's trading at about 18 times its guided EBITDA. Uh, but the TDOC experts are, uh, sorry, TDOC are experts in, in revising this figure down. So, uh, it's not an impressive report. It's not an impressive guide, but what did we expect, Steve? That's kind of the question, I suppose. I feel like every time this company writes down some more goodwill, and I think it's now written down more or less the entirety of the Livongo acquisition. Pretty much, yeah. see of it. So it makes it look like it was basically just a waste of that much money and i find that quite hard to believe uh, by the way i find it sort of difficult to think they got nothing from that i don't find it at all difficult to think they overpaid uh i find it hard to think they didn't overpay substantially in fact but i don't see that they got kind of nothing from this and i sort of wonder at what point this starts looking in some way interesting because 
To Kathy Wood's thought here then for a moment, she owns a lot of this company and she will have bought a lot of this company a lot higher than it is now. I mm. wouldn't be surprised to learn that she, well, I would, but I'll come back to this thought in a second. I was going to say, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that she'd bought some of this when it was around 292 uh, a few years ago, when it's down sort of around 90-ish percent uh, from there. That's a lot higher. And that was that was almost certainly a bad price to be paying for a company mm. in that state, whichever way you want to look at that. And the reason I say I might be surprised to learn that is that she probably sold it and bought it back again by that point, the rate that they uh, turn things around at ARC. That's the way they go about doing things. So over the long term, could this work out as a, a decent bet from here? I mean, you said $2.6 in revenues guiding for. The stock only trades at about four and a bit, and this can't have huge uh, costs in it once it gets to the kind of optimised state, I think. I feel like there's got to be uh, something kind of positive to be done there and i'm sort of thinking okay it's not happening soon and it might not be happening soon enough for investors but is there a price where this becomes interesting well i it, it's the problem is it's it's not going to be a price that's interesting to us it's a price that's getting interesting to other people and you've got to think only about six months ago Amazon started its purchase of One Medical, and they paid $3.9 billion for One Medical, mm. which is nowhere near the level of scale that Teladoc has, and nowhere near you know the, the level of profitability that something like that Teladoc is in. I, you just got to wonder now, if Amazon are sat there thinking, God, if we'd have waited six months, just six months, we'd have been able to pick up you know, essentially the market, essentially to be the market leader, you can buy the market leader in this segment for just over four and a half billion, it's another seven hundred million over what they spent on one medical. That that is nothing, and and the problem with that is that if it's nothing to Amazon, who probably now will not be allowed to make the deal, it's still nothing to other companies who will be allowed to make the deal. So Teladoc to me looks like, uh, especially now that it's got itself into such a position where, you know, it's generating free cash, it's not burning cash anymore. There, I think the chances of it going bust are very very slim. Uh, you would say that this is now you would now class this as a cyclical because when the you know when the markets have um, turned against Teladoc, then its growth has completely slowed, and, and as it gets bigger and bigger, that would probably start to reverse. You would assume that the people, when people start to get fired or laid off, their medical care with Teladoc will end as well. So, I don't think it's at the kind of size where that's going to you know reverse at the moment. I think there's still. Uh, going to be growth, and when that when the uh, market does recover and the economy recovers, then Teladoc should start growing at a decent clip again if it if it can somehow get itself into that kind of position. But I I worry about people buying now actually ended up with a decent return. I think that's my big issue with Teladoc. I think the problem is is that this could just be taken out for four and a half and five billion, and I don't think the Teladoc shareholders will probably have the gut to to turn down a deal like that. That's interesting. I was sort of thinking about that in the context of if I'd bought Teladoc shares a long time ago. It's one thing to think, you know, I'm an investor. I'm thinking for the long term here. I don't really care where the share price is this year or, in fact, next year. I don't plan to do anything with the stock this year or next year apart from maybe buy more of it. And if someone makes me an outrageously high offer, well, maybe I'll sell it to them. But the risk of acquisition here, I think, is probably the most serious one to to think about because if you bought the thing anywhere near even 200 uh, you'd be worrying that you're going to get taken out higher than the current price and lower than the price you paid for it which would be i guess a bad result and i suppose that's the natural risk of these things but as you pointed out uh, these kind of goodwill write downs are getting in the way a little bit if you just kind of scan over the headlines uh, this is a profitable now company in free cash terms the goodwill charges are not cash charges so Cash-wise, we're coming in okay and positive, and we're not burning the stuff anymore. So, it's a debt. Unlike we probably don't need debt for the moment, and let's think it will be. Teladoc will think once, twice, three times, and probably again before it does any more attempts to try and merge or acquire or anything, uh, because I think its shareholders would have a fit, and hard to blame them to be honest. So, in that situation, then you've got a billion in cash. You're generating. Uh, stuff from a buyback and you're edging towards uh, sorry you're generating stuff from free cash flow uh, and you're edging towards efficiency and operating um, optimization and so on do you think the right thing to do here is for Teladoc to buy themselves before somebody else does via a buyback uh, 
It, potentially, yes, to try and get that share price moving. But I think the issue Teladoc has got is that I think investor sentiment is completely crushed around this company now. And I think it's twofold. I think it's because it's been a very poor performing stock, but also because Cathy Wood owns it and, and it's fun to hate on Cathy Wood, isn't it? And I think it, I think this happens not just at a retail level. I think this happens at an institutional level as well. So, um, I think Teladoc is in a spot of trouble in, in, in that regard. But I, I, I noticed that they're spending a lot more on um, sales and administration. So I think they they seem like they're really against um, spending it on this buyback. I think what they're, they're really trying to do is just keep that growth going. I, I think what they don't want to be doing is pivoting into focusing on being a profitable only business and sort of sacrificing what growth they can get. I think they just want to sort of meander along growing at a sort of, you know, slow pace. I mean, 10% is not the end of the world, but it's not teledoc growth. But once they get to, you know, hoping for a better market when maybe these tech hires, you know, start being taken on again, that perhaps that they can, you know, reignite that growth back into the 20% mark. If they do that, this will look like a very exciting proposition going forward. If they don't manage that, then it's kind of worrying how they go from here. But at this kind of price, again, you you nailed it when you said it's a real acquisition worry. I mean, that must be giving Kathy sleepless nights. She must be down 50, 60, 70% on this stock and somebody could take it out and offer her nowhere near the premium required. And that would just be, that would just be burning money. Yeah, that's, I, that would be the real, I guess, probably worst, I don't know, worst case scenario, I suppose, is it just, it's unlikely to kind of uh, disappear out of existence without being acquired though, I guess. And I find it hard to see how much lower this share price can go. I mean, anything can go anywhere, right? Either because of some sort of exogenous event, something could push the stock market down in general if inflation keeps coming in high, especially if they keep looking to build out their sales and marketing division. Hmm. But based on its kind of value here, I, we're at twice sales now or so. Um, something like that. Yeah, not even just well, not even quite that, is it? It's under that. And yeah, they're talking about sort of between 15 and 18 times EBITDA, depending on which one of those figures you like mm -hmm. best. It's not an expense. I even saw Wilson Capital on Twitter, who is very, very negative of tech stocks. He usually picks out and just highlights all the all the crap that he hates and he, he's really aggressive with how he sort of feels about companies and even he sort of looked at this and went this isn't this isn't a massively terrible report if you know what i mean and this isn't a massively terrible valuation this stock has fallen a long way and not that it can't fall in half again from here investor sentiment really is that low on it i don't think a lot of people would want to admit publicly that they own teledoc stock um, and the minute the the minute the uh, report came out, I had people in my DMs saying, "Teladoc a bag of crap." Um, but I don't know yet. I'm I'm not ready to fully declare that yet, Steve. I, I'm I'm not a million miles away from it. Don't get me wrong, but I'm I'm not ready to do that just yet. The more, the cheaper this gets, the more I like it, which sounds dumb, but is quite significant here because. More trivially than anything, the cheaper it gets, the more I like it here. I mean, 9% growth then in revenue is, it's not explosive, um, but it doesn't need to be explosive if you're only going to pay all right, one and three quarter uh, times the revenues to buy the thing. And if you think profitability is coming and will come and there's cash on the balance sheet to reduce the risk, uh, I don't think this is the worst thing in the world to be holding at the moment. Um, I, Yeah, I'd be much happier holding it here than I would have been uh, when it was trading much higher, which hmm. is, I suppose, the wrong way around to how most people sort of think about these things. But hmm. there we are. That's my kind of view on them. Should we move on? Yeah, sure. Uh, okay, realty income then. So the opposite of Teladoc, basically. Friend of dividend investors anywhere uh, reported its earnings this week, and they were pretty uninteresting, but they're, I think they were kind of sneak better than I was expecting them to be. So their revenue for the quarter came in at $889 million, which was... 30% higher than it was uh, last this quarter last year. Adjusted funds from operations for the quarter were a dollar, which was 6% higher than last year. Revenue for the full year, because it was the end of the year, uh, came in at $3.3 billion, up about 35%, and adjusted funds from operations, $3.92. Uh, the stock has a price of around the 65 region, I'm moving around at the moment because the market's open. So this is a company then that attempts to focus on high quality tenants that are unlikely to go bust, unlikely to not pay their rent and generally give you much better sleeping nights than Kathy Wood's having with Teladoc. 
so that has its puts and takes, to be honest. It's very obvious what the kind of good news is that uh, is with that. So you'll get better occupancy rates, you'll get better rent collections, unlikely that much is going to go wrong, with one exception that we'll come back to in a moment. And occupancy was good this quarter. It was 99.2%. Cool. Um, same store rent was basically flat, so they had some small gains which were offset by Cineworld going bankrupt. They hoped to recover uh, the money that they should have got in rent from Cineworld and, and uh, whatever they're called, Regency or Regal or something, uh, cinemas. But that meant that overall things were flat compared to last year in terms of same store rent. Uh, that's the kind of downside with something like realty income. If you have high quality tenants, they're unlikely to let you rip them off because they're high quality tenants and they can go somewhere else. And realty income is, generally speaking, a pretty undifferentiated uh, operation. So if you think about that compared to something like a federal realty, which focuses on high quality locations and you can't just run away and get something similar elsewhere, there's less obviously a point of differentiation here. Uh, so that makes them kind of in some ways price takers rather than price setters. I think their average rent escalator per year is about 1%. So you're not going to get huge amounts of growth. There's certainly nothing that's going to outpace inflation at 2%, uh, even if it gets to 2%, which is currently not, it's miles higher. What that means then is they have to try and stay ahead of things by acquiring things and disposing of things and somehow uh, getting more properties and renting them out better. And that comes with challenges in a rising interest rate. So they... Raised in the last quarter $2.2 billion with an equity placement at around $65, which means basically the idea with these is that you want to try and raise money at one price and then invest it in something that's going to pay you rent at a higher price. It's kind of as simple as that for a realty income. And if you think about what that costs them then to raise at 65, well, they have a dividend which currently is a 4.5% yield there, so call it 4.5% they need to get above. And they raised $750 million in debt at just under 4%. So they're looking to kind of get a return there. Anything above uh, whatever the weighted average of that is, probably about 4.3%. Anything above that as a return is going to put them ahead. Anything below that is going to put them behind. And their basic plan is to try and grow by doing that. And the real question about this business is how often can you repeat that trick uh, of issuing debt or equity at one price? and then finding something to buy at another one. You can also do it by disposing of uh, properties that you have and then trying to find better ones and renting them out like that. But that incurs costs along the way. So the guidance for next year is $5 billion, uh, in acquisitions. They reckon they can keep doing this, which is kind of encouraging. Uh, same store rent growth, they're looking for what they call above 1.25%, which is not uh, that high. Adjusted funds from operations somewhere around the $4 mark. Uh, in their words, our external growth opportunities are broad, including diverse property types and geographies. I'm not sure I believe that particularly. I think the opportunities for them are getting narrower and narrower and they're getting harder and harder as interest rates are going up because their debt's getting more expensive and their ability to grow this is going to become an issue. I'm not that worried about the debt that they have at the moment in their existing stuff. I think they'll be fine with that, but I am getting slightly concerned by their ability to grow their uh, portfolio by taking on debt and then finding a better opportunity to go and invest it again. And I think that's coming through a little bit in their numbers for their dividend. So everything you look at in their investor presentation talks about their CAGR over time. And it's all since their 1994 listing. And that was a long time ago. They point out they've managed to grow this at 4.4% per year since 1994. And it's true, uh, by the way, I'm not saying they're making that up. But that's a long time ago. Their five-year CAGR on their dividend is 1.75%. So this thing is growing much slower. Uh, my general takeaway from all of this is that you can buy the thing today if you want. It's got a yield of about 4.6%. I think at some stage that external growth will slow down and what you'll be left with is a low internal growth story. If you think that's a big enough yield to be worth it to you and probably uh, significantly lower risk than something like Teladoc, fine. Uh, absolutely no problem with buying the stock at that level. But I think if I were a dividend investor, which I'm not, but I do own this, uh, I would be thinking that there are definitely puts and takes to this rather than just a long dividend history and some successive uh, dividend increases. It's not to me the obvious kind of goldmine that dividend investors think it is. I think there's 
there's genuine risk there that it's worth being aware of. What do you think, Steve? That was quite long. Well, so with a REIT, I, I generally think the, the, the master plan must be to acquire it until you can acquire no more and hmm. then start to raise the prices incrementally on people and that's how you then generate your growth from that period forward. Realty income is a large scale now. It's a scale where it stopped acquiring um, it stopped acquiring um, properties and it started acquiring companies. Uh, and in so doing that, it's had to spin off another one, another company. It was Orion, wasn't it? Was it last year or the year before? That um, mm-hmm. I think I would have almost pre- preferred to have seen that kept inside if they could have done. But um, but there we go. Um, so, yeah, you're definitely right. Uh, I nodded and said yes, even though I, I forgot I was on mute when you said about the dividend. You can definitely see that and you can really see there's that real struggle to keep cranking up that dividend. They're managing it, but... Um, but yeah, a real struggle, which is going to end up being quite embarrassing if if this uh, if they ever have to you know cut this or uh, not grow it, considering they've trademarked the monthly dividend company as their uh, as their yep. um, as their slogan. So yeah, I, I mean, I really like Realty Co. I I think it was one of the first companies I must have put you on to when you me and you first started talking about investing. And it was one of those stocks that I said it's just worth a look at. It's just a, a fa- you know fantastically well managed REIT and has been for a very long time. But it might be getting to what I think you're trying to point out is maybe the sort of peak of its abilities at the moment. I think it's uh, potentially running out of. Uh, properties that it can buy at a good price that will move the needle for them and, and that's a real problem for it and it won't just be realty income alone that suffers with this uh, all of the other REITs will eventually encounter uh, something like this especially as the the rates continue to increase and with the inflation numbers coming in a little bit hot today that sort of heightens the chances of a heavier uh, lift in interest rates which only sort of compounds on this problem for us so uh, realty income, they're a great stock if you just want income. But if you want that income to grow pretty quickly or to to you know to increase every year from this point forwards, I'd be less inclined to be looking at it. That's a pretty good summary, I think. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at this as something that needs to grow externally by acquisition. Acquisitions are getting harder, although I thought the report from this was sort of reasonably encouraging that there's at least another year left to come. And once you get past the stage of external acquisitions, I don't think they have the ability to raise prices very much because I don't think they have a very differentiated offering. And I think they have tenants who will say, I want to pay higher prices. I'll go somewhere else in that case. I have a really good credit rating. Loads of other places will have me. Um, so I'm sort of thinking of that as the big the big point of uncertainty is how long can they keep acquiring and keep acquiring well. On the positive side for them, I would back them to not, do a teledoc thing and i would back them to not acquire badly uh i think they probably just wouldn't acquire at all i don't think they will get to a point where they start desperately reaching to try and keep things growing because they've got they've got some internal growth if they can keep ticking things over even at just one percent and the dividend's not growing much faster than that i think it, they have a bunch of shareholders who will be happy as long as the dividend goes up by some amount uh every well every pretty much quarter uh they tend to increase but that's sort of where I think I see them. And I thought that was a reasonably encouraging report that there's a bit more left in the acquisition machine. Yeah, interesting to see. Uh, well, this is one of those things, isn't it? It's almost a bet on the macro environment, isn't it? So if you if you sat acquiring REITs now, you've got to hope that interest rates are coming down or that your manager is very, very adept at you know, offsetting future rises in interest rates. If we end up at the Volcker level, sort of 20 to 40 interest mm. rates, all of these REITs are screwed. Um but yeah, uh, interesting one, Steve. What else did you have on your list, or would you like me to go next? Why don't you tell us about something else, which I think is probably Etsy. Yeah, okay. Um, so these were not, uh, well, uh, not not that we've come from particularly exciting earnings, but these were not uh, very exciting earnings either from Etsy. I thought it, it was pretty run-of-the-mill. Uh, so they missed on the bottom line by $0.03. Cents. They reported $0.77 cents instead of the expectations of 80 Uh 
heavy shoulder shrug there, I guess. Uh, surprised on the revenue front, they posted 807 million instead of the 751 million expected. So this was 13% growth year on year for them. That's not too bad, actually. It's probably better than you would have expected coming into the Christmas period. Uh, adjusted EBITDA was up 4%, but the margin actually fell back to 28.1%. So, uh, metrics wise for the business, gross merchandise sales fell 4%, and both active sellers and buyers fell by 1%. So this comes with the territory, I think. Etsy has recently increased its take rate, and it's only natural to see some of those people fall off from that. Uh, but outside of that, uh, Etsy actually looks like it's holding up really well. They guided for 600 to 640 million in revenue. Wall Street wanted 621 million, so that's in the middle. They don't actually guide for uh, for EPS, so um, nothing to see there. For the full year, Etsy uh, actually lost its earnings multiple because it had a, a reported a goodwill impairment last quarter. It's about a billion dollars. Uh, and this is the same issue that Teladoc has had essentially overpaying for acquisitions. Uh, but you can safely sub that back in if you want to regenerate a PE. I think you'll find it'll be in the 50s. Uh, if if uh, the guidance is correct and all things remain equal, we'll be looking at about a 36x multiple, which is still pretty expensive, Steve, for this kind of growth. Um what do you think of that? Is that is something that interests you? Um, is it? Uh, I kind of think it is. 18% revenue growth, 36 times earnings. That bit sounds all right, but then the margin got kind of eaten away, right? Which is why we had a beat at the top and a miss at the bottom, um, which normally says to me something like inflation, uh, that you had more people paying more stuff and then it all got used up in costs because everything you pay for was more expensive too. Uh, the billion acquisition, that was stuff like including but not limited to Depop and that sort of thing. Yeah, and Reverb, I think it was all, mm -hmm. they kind of wrote them down as a collective, but which is a shame, really, because they only had about 1.3 or 1.4 billion on uh, of goodwill on the balance sheet, so they're pretty much saying it's all rubbish. So I don't know what they've acquired there or what they haven't acquired or how bad it really is, but they don't seem to value it at all. No, that's, I guess, sort of interesting. I, I suppose there's something to be had for kind of rolling up various versions of either second-hand or handmade or whatever um, online sort of peer-to-peer -peer selling, I guess, that's hmm. that's not Amazon uh, because people don't who shop on there. I think probably generally don't like Amazon and I imagine sellers don't like Amazon very much either, to be honest, because they do quite well out of them. Yeah, so I mean, I used to work in this sector and I can tell you that we're not, we're not massive fans of Amazon at the time, mainly because of all the kind of like checks and balances that they put on you they really do try and like run your life like you have like a set amount of time to even respond to people because they don't want people to associate mm. your not a stellar customer service with their absolutely stellar customer service so there are hundreds hundreds of things and they'll just they'll just message you and say uh yeah the wardrobe uh, arrived damaged uh we've given the customer back all of the money and you're like what we we can just give him a new panel you know what i mean <laughs> like we can just like we could He's only around the corner. We could have dropped it off, and they're like, "But that's it. You just don't get a choice." And they're like, "And if you say, well, that's not fair. We we just have a panel. We could drop it off." And they say, "Well, you should just pop that into your budget as uh, your problem and not ours. It's a cost of a cost of doing business with Amazon." But that's that's fine, uh, I guess. And and I wonder if Etsy's got that kind of has it got that kind of sting with its customers that Amazon does. I mean, when you're an Amazon customer, if you stopped selling on Amazon, you're pretty much tearing up half of your business in a day. I would assume so. Uh, with Etsy, I wonder if it's quite the same. Uh, I suppose some of these people are. I suppose it is the largest curated marketplace of of handmade goods, although not everything on there is a, is specifically in that kind of niche. But they are trying to make it a little bit more like that. Um, I just I don't know of any real competition, Steve. I don't know. I mean, I know there's Amazon handmade, but again, we're going back down all the channels there. I yeah. think it's doing okay, Etsy. I think it's held up a lot better than I thought it would. And I think it's just one of those things that, again, if I was a holder of it, I don't know if I'd be in a rush to buy anymore. But I'd be happy to just sit on it for now. Are you not a holder? I, well, yes, but I'm only in the money center. I don't really uh. class that as a real thing. No, fair enough. I couldn't remember uh, whether and where you were. It's a weird one, Etsy. It's a business model I quite like. You just sort of sit there taking a cut off other people's uh, money, which is great. Um, so these kind of platform businesses, like other examples that we talk about on here, include stuff like Airbnb, uh, include Rightmove, include, include Amazon to an extent. Um, there's something to like about that 
and they, I think, have a strongish brand in terms of the handmade stuff. If you were looking for something genuinely handmade, you'd go and look at Etsy. I sort of find them annoying because I find them to be full of spreadsheets, um, mm. to be honest, which, yeah, okay, people did make them themselves, but that's not, to my mind, what's meant by handmade particularly. It's not the kind of thing I kind of uh, associate with them, which which is, I think, is probably the main reason I don't own this stock, and I don't really get the space either very well. I tend to uh, i probably ought to shop on there more often to be honest when i'm looking for presents and stuff but um i don't and therefore sort of i've historically wondered whether it's a fad i wonder i think probably etsy itself is quite powerful and maybe the stuff it's bought perhaps isn't which i suppose squares with this idea that it's being written down in quite a lot of ways yeah i think i agree with that i think they've been trying to grow some new you know, grow some new arms grow some new legs to their business and i think they've, mm. they've found very quickly that these companies are just not going to be not going to be new etsy's and i think that's uh that's that's why they've been marked down I, I i've never used any of the products in question so i don't i don't know if they're good purchases or not but i mean etsy blatantly think they're not yeah, Depop's an interesting one. All I see, I've never been on Depop. Uh, my wife, I think, shops on there or did shop on there for some kind of, I think, secondhand maternity gear for when that was something that we needed. And she didn't have this experience, but all we saw on kind of social media was people who had kind of messaged sellers being like, where's my dress coming? Uh, and sellers who write back and like, it's Friday afternoon, sod off and leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's very much not the Amazon way of customer service from what I can see of it. Yeah, it's a bit like, have you, I don't know if you've ever tried to sell anything on Gumtree or Facebook and you just end up with, like, they're just the most annoying people in the world. You'll, you'll put something on for, like, be on for, like, £5 and someone will message you and say, four! And you're like, oh, for <laughs> sake, it's a fiver, do you know what I mean? If you come around, you can have it. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Facebook Marketplace is interesting. Uh, we got quite a bit of stuff on there, not handmade stuff, uh, I would point out, so there's a decent scope for selling stuff that isn't that there. But I, I'm impressed that Etsy's holding up fairly well. Etsy with a sort of, uh, I guess, small e. So Etsy the platform rather than Etsy the, the business here. Mm. What did the stock do, by the way, on the news? Did we? Did you say that? Yeah, it was up about 6% on the mm. news, which was I was a bit worried about it, really, because I know we're in a kind of earnings kind of market, and it, even though it only fell just short, and usually just short's enough to fall 50%, so I thought it might do a bit worse than it did. And it was up 6%. It's given all of that back already, Steve. It's all it's already much cheaper than it was uh, at the beginning of the earnings. But... Um, I don't think there was anything particularly special in that earnings to make it go up six percent either. So uh, fair, fair play to me. I think it should be. You should have stayed exactly flat. Fair enough. Let's stick with the theme of online marketplaces, then, shall we? Let's talk about Mercado Libre, which is not for handmade things, but it is in Latin America. Overnight, the market was uh, really enjoying their results or thinking very highly of them, and at the moment, they're up about one and a half percent today. That's in the context of a market that's generally not up one and a bit percent. So they are kind of getting a push from this earnings report, I think, even if it's not a kind of eye-catching stock was up loads percent. Sometimes that's buoyed by a rising market, which makes it look a bit more uh, punchy. But their revenues came in at three billion for the year. They were up 56 percent compared to a year ago. Uh, sorry, three billion for the quarter, not three billion for the year. Ten and a half billion for the year. And their earnings per share were $3.25. That's compared to a loss from last time, so however much higher you want to call that. Uh, and they were $9.53 for the year. The stock is still quite a way above that, but um, just over half their revenue came from their commerce arm, which is their kind of Amazon-like platform. The other just under half came from their fintech platform, which is a bit like PayPal, but they are kind of integrated into these things. So what they have then is a online kind of commerce platform and something that kind of is in theory quite a high margin low maintenance money making machine remind you of anyone anyway uh they like reporting things like growth gross merchandising volume one of the things i notice when i look at their reports as i've done a couple of times now is they're very much more interested in talking about performance metrics than they are in talking about financial metrics, which I'm not saying that's a good thing, not saying it's a bad thing, but it tells you a lot about how you think they think about themselves as a company. And they want to say, here is what we're aiming at. Here is what we're trying to deliver on. We're trying to deliver on stuff like gross merchandising volume, which is up 35%, uh, and total payment volume going through their payment platform, which is up 80%. And the amount of payment volume that's going through things that are not their marketplace, so people using their payment platform elsewhere, uh, and therefore them getting stuck into basically everything in 
Argentina, Brazil, and Latin America, so on, uh, is up 121%. And they have a credit portfolio, which is up 68%. Uh, this looks very impressive. But it is quite hard to find on there. You have to dig it out. They've buried the EPS number uh, somewhere, because clearly either they don't think it's very important or they don't want you to think it's very important, or both uh, with these things. So it took me a little while to go digging out that number, and I found lots of other ones that were related to kind of performance metrics. All in all, I guess very impressive. Uh, they're, they're growing well. They're busy entrenching themselves quite well. I have a couple of thoughts here, uh, Steve, but what, if anything, stood out to you here? Mercado Libra is a stock we've talked about a few times on and off this podcast. Yeah, it was really uh, interesting to me to look at the, the sort of fintech side of their business finally catching up to the commerce side of their business. The commerce side is not growing at a particularly quick rate um, in comparison to how it has done. I think it was up 22% year on year, but if it was FX neutral, it was about 36 But the fintech was up nearly 73% year on year. So that's still like, rapidly coming along. So it's about $1.7 uh, to $1.3 if we're if we're taking it back into dollars here so it was quite an impressive statement from Melly. i was i was I, there was not really a lot to dislike in 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 pretty much the whole report i think they did they throw out 1.8 billion in free cash flow as well steve did i see that at the end of the report that might be right yeah yeah and that's again another it's impressive to see these numbers from mercado libra because it's another one of those stocks that you know we were told a couple of years ago would never make any money and here it is making lots of money so it's um it's a very, very interesting business, Steve. I think it's got a, a, a quite a, a, a large future ahead of it. Now, I think it's it's started to sort of squash those rumours of Amazon coming in and eating its breakfast, and it's squashed when C came over to try and compete with it as well. Um, it's recently, it's one of its competitors has come out as being fraudulent. So, uh, Mercado Libre, on the back of all of that news, looks a lot stronger today than it did, you know, just just a few months ago. So I still can't quite get over that hill to buy it. I have bought it before and sold it uh, on a number of occasions. I think we've both been sort of guilty of that. But I bought it again at about 700 and sold it at about 1200 since then, uh, which, again, is not something to be stiffed at. But it's about that kind of 1200 figure now, Steve. And if it gets down again to the sort of seven and 800s, I don't think I'd have as many problems holding it this time. What about you? Yeah, I likewise have bought it around the seven and sold it around the nine. But this is quite a while ago, and this is quite a different looking business i feel a bit more positively about it now than i did back then i don't know whether i feel 1155 which is the number i've written down as today again market open might be anywhere now uh, moving around number um but i definitely think this is a stock where i need to kind of sit down and rethink this kind of by myself so this kind of came onto our radars back in sort of 2020 21 early sort of early mid covid time i guess as well so maybe 2019 and at that time, it looked expensive by pretty much any metrics. And in fairness, I think in 2021, the stock was at just under $2,000. It pretty much was expensive by pretty much any metrics. Uh, so I don't kind of feel bad about thinking it was overpriced then. But the trouble with this, and it's the same trouble I have with realty income, but with a different selection of uh, market participants, is that I hear a lot of stuff about this that I don't think is very intelligent. Uh, and it causes me to dismiss it as a stock for people who don't think very much about stocks. And I'm not saying my thinking is great, but I at least try and have a go and know a little bit more than just, look, it's got a dividend, or mm. look, it's going up. Um, and I kind of think that sometimes I get I lose myself into thinking when people idly say things like, ah, oh, but the market's not pricing in Mercado Pago, it's, it's payment uh, arm. I sort of and have no idea what they mean by that uh what they would price that at and what they would value that or why or anything like that and i sort of think well that doesn't mean they're wrong it just means that i shouldn't pay any attention to what they're saying here right i mean broken clocks who tell you everything's overpriced will rightly point out some things are overpriced uh broken clocks that tell you everything is underpriced will be right about some things being underpriced I think this is well worth another look uh, for me in this situation. Whether I can get over the line compared to other things that are on offer is another question. But i kind of taken with this. And one thing that I like about them very much is they do appear to have quite a good focus on what they're doing now. I don't associate them as being like Amazon who 
always seem to be constantly wanting to disrupt something else. They want to disrupt food delivery and they want to disrupt health and they want to disrupt... There are always new worlds to conquer uh, for Amazon. And without going all Paul about it, um, I feel like sometimes you can grow at your own risk uh, here and grow in sort of unintelligent ways. That's very much a theme of this show, uh, the idea that not all growth is intelligent growth. But in the case of Mercado Libra, they look pretty well focused to me and they look like they're just concentrating on getting themselves set up making themselves hard to dislodge again, and then after that, they should turn into a cash machine. And that looks quite attractive to me. They said that on the call, Steve. Uh, mm. Galprin said that he was laser-focused on the core businesses that they're in at the moment, so he's not looking to really grow any new arms for, for Melly. He's looking at these you know, the, these these two areas, and he wants to be the best at them, and if they become the best in those two areas, they'll do, they'll do rather well. Um, just to further your point, people saying that they're not valuing the Mercado Pago, well, that's because it's almost impossible to value, because, I mean, how, what do you know about making loans in Argentina and Brazil? I mean, mm. I, I know nothing. I, I mean, I've got the motor and spreadsheet that tells me that it's an incredibly risky area, but we've got so many things coming ahead which are going to make it even more difficult. I mean, Brazil and Argentina are in talks to make a joint currency, and they want to, they want to spread it out to the uh, the rest of the countries, the SER, the SURs for South America. So, um, you know, if that happens and we, we get South America gets its own currency, which actually, if you think about it, might be a very... You know, pretty good idea. It might bring some stability to some of the currencies around that area. Although, if I was Brazil, would I want to be tied to Argentina's uh, uh, economy? Not so sure about that. Uh, it's not been a. It's been a particularly defaulty economy, if you, if you want to call it that. But there's so many problems with managing money in uh, in in South America that that makes it an incredibly difficult thing to price. So, if I was pricing this, I would be looking at the retail arm of it. And then trying to come up with an arbitrary figure that I think Pargo is going to be worth. I think that's how I would have to value it. But it's a lot easier when it's throwing off free cash, Steve, and you can start to plot that free cash growth. It makes it makes life so much easier for you when you start to see margins. Um, I think it's a good business. I just I'm just not sure I want to pay this much for it. But it, again, it's only trading at about fifty-seven billion in valuation. This isn't a huge company. This isn't, you know, you've got to look at things like Alibaba, which are trading ten times as. Yes, it's got a lot more, uh, a lot more revenue, but it's growing a lot slower. But um, you know, this is a very, very important market. Um, you know, a very fast-growing market. I, I don't know, Steve. We could maybe get there with a little bit of pushing. Yeah, two things there. One is the loans thing. Uh, Brian Stoffel made a video on Mercado Libra's recent. Uh, report. I think it's the largest investment he has. It certainly was at one point. Prices move around, so it might not be anymore, and he's allowed to buy more things, so that may have changed. But he said the biggest risk he could see was them starting a loans business and loans going past due, and I'm a little bit wary of uh, bad debt in this situation, because bigger and stronger and tougher companies than Mercado Libre is now have been brought down by unwisely trying to turn themselves into a bank mm. uh general electric is a good example of this things were going very well for them until they started attempting to try and be a bank and messing around in that kind of space i'd rather they didn't get themselves too growth heavy minded in this kind of area that seems like a risk to me i can probably live with that if things kind of just tick over gently here and i think there is something good to be done but i would be cautious about them going in too hard too far too soon since you mentioned Alibaba, though, uh, Steve, I was listening to Charlie Munger at the Daily Journal uh, shareholder meeting. He didn't even work for them anymore, from what I can understand it. He just manages their um, investment portfolio, in which he does basically nothing month after month after month. Uh, doesn't get paid for it. But the Daily Journal's investor shareholder meeting, I'm not a Daily Journal shareholder, but it's streamed, um, is just a Q&A with Charlie Munger in the style of the Berkshire one. Uh, but he said something that I thought was interesting. It kind of made me smile a little bit for two reasons. One is he said, I regard Alibaba as one of the worst mistakes I ever made. In thinking that Alibaba about Alibaba, I got charmed at the idea of their position on the Chinese internet, and I didn't stop to realise that they're still a goddamn retailer. It's going to be a competitive business. Uh, this made me smile for two reasons. One is that I thought Charlie Munger was the reason a lot of retail investors owned Alibaba, uh, thinking, okay, if Charlie Munger owns it, how bad can it be? Yes, there's a lot of kind of risk and VIEs are illegal and I don't care what else, but damn it, it's cheap and Charlie Munger says it's okay. Mm, Charlie Munger doesn't say it's okay. Charlie Munger says it's one of his worst mistakes ever. The other thing that stuck out to me was he said, it's a goddamn retailer. It is a goddamn retailer, but 
You own Costco. Costco is a retailer. Like your favourite stock in the world is Costco. The fact that it's a retailer can't be a reason that you think um, it's. The first thing can't be something that you missed and have just remembered. And secondly, even at ninety nine. Uh, mm. And secondly, it can't be the reason you think this can't be a good business to invest in. Literally, your favourite stock is a retailer. Yeah, it's not the only problem Baba has, is it? Do you know what I mean? Like, if you're going to list the things that made it the worst investment in the world, you probably wouldn't get, you wouldn't, you know, kick it off with, oh, because it's a retailer. I mean, one mm. of the problems are is, you know, the whole structure that it operates under is potentially illegal and the Chinese government could shut it down at any point. Plus, the, um, Jack Ma, the last time he spoke, he ended up going in exile for six months. So, yeah, it's probably under a lot of scrutiny. Um, so, yeah, there's a number of problems that you would have with... Uh, with Alibaba, and I'm not sure retailer is right at the top of my problems, but, uh, you know, if Munger says it's his worst mistake, then he's had a very good investing career, evidently. I, I think it's probably true that he has had a very good investing career, in fairness. I mean, he's he's 99, and I thought it quite more entertaining than anything else. Uh, and I liked enjoying watching a certain species of value investor since I've so far been rude about dumb dividend investors and dumb growth investors, which isn't to say that's all the dividend investors or all the growth investors, but there is definitely an unthinking part of both of those communities. There's an unthinking part of the value community too. Uh, they just say things like, see, look, this is uh, here's Charlie Munger saying crypto's terrible. Like, you missed the bit where he said Alibaba was a massive mistake and it's like 30% of your portfolio. Yeah. <laughs> I saw a video the other day of uh, somebody trying to analyse Buffett's 13F, but it was before um, he'd sold TSMC, and he was saying that this was an, a very, a very good buy, and it's Buffett's way of getting into semiconductors at good valuations. I think Buffett's <laughs> already got rid of the vast majority of it. He's probably got rid of all of it since. He probably just couldn't get the whole block trade on in time for the 13F. <laughs> oh, someone fire Mark Millard then in that case. But, uh, okay, that's Mercado Libra. Um, do you want to talk about Dutch ovens, Steve? Dutch ovens? Yep. <laughs> is that what we're calling it now, is it? That's what I'm uh, calling them. I know, I've got it written down that they're not called Dutch ovens, but that's what I want to call them this time. Do you know what Dutch ovens do, Steve? Yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> uh, they have two meanings. One of the meanings, we own them. But uh, tell me about your experience with Dutch ovens recently. Right, okay, so Dutch Brothers, uh, or Dutch Bros, I'm not actually sure you meant to pronounce it, it must be Brothers, I can't, I can't, but they do, they do shorten it down. Uh, so they're, uh, um, it's, it's not one we've spoken about much, they're another one in my capital, Incinerator Pie, um, well, as was te um, Etsy and um, Teladoc, but they're a, a coffee and cold drink outlet rivaling Starbucks, um, but they're, they're a lot smaller. They're about 5.7 billion in market cap. And I think Starbucks is probably still over 100 billion, uh, although that could change be uh, between now and the close of the market. But Dutch Brothers are growing pretty quickly. And actually, they, they actually come out top on surveys uh, amongst uh, millennials and younger on preference between the two. So it's quite an interesting looking company. But I'll give you the financials. Uh, revenue rose 44% in Q4 to 201.8 million, uh, beating expectations pretty handily. Uh, they reported a positive adjusted EPS of 3 cents, which was falling short of the 7 cents that was expected. They guided for sales to reach 950 million to 1 billion, and this is genuine growth because they've got no plans to raise prices. Um, this will represent about another 35% growth. Um, adjusted EBITDA grew 115.7% uh, to 29.8 million. Uh, so some of this is going to trickle down to the bottom line. Um, it slipped a little bit uh, year on year because there's just been an increase in input costs. So they're going to do this by continuing their rapid pace of store openings. They're going to open uh, 150 by the end of the financial year, of which 130 of them, Steve, they want to operate themselves. Uh, they're still on track to have 1,000 stores by 2025. Um, coincidentally, uh, franchise restaurant uh, companies actually tend to perform better than company-operated ones, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But their model at the moment currently has 26% gross margins on company-owned um, uh, branches, and that's pretty good for a coffee house. Mm. Uh, they're also projecting low single-digit same-store sales growth next year as well, so there's going to be a little bit of growth push there. So for valuation-wise, this one's trading a couple of times sales. It actually has 100 million of long-term debt on the balance sheet, which is neither here nor there. But the problem is it's a little short on cash. When I was looking down at it, they only have about 
20 million, somewhere around that kind of amount. So I think we're going to see a secondary offering soon, uh, I think, uh, or some kind of bond offering perhaps, uh, because the rate they're expanding, it isn't going to be cheap, and I don't think they've quite got the earnings at the moment to support it. But I don't think they're a million miles away, Steve, and I think that makes it a pretty interesting one to look at. Do you think it's likely to be debt or do you think it's likely to be equity? I think it'll be equity because I think mm. after an IPO, you usually, well, I mean, speaking from history, you almost always got a secondary offering be, uh, if a company came quite early. So I would be very surprised if it was a if it was a debt raise and not an equity offering. They're still trading at a fairly decent price. They're, they're way down from their IPO, but they're still trading at a fairly decent price. Uh, two times sales, you would say, is probably about the right kind of, you know, time to start offering a bit of stock. I guess the kind of conventional wisdom then for a company that's in sort of rapid expansion mode and is ticking along with some cash, but probably not enough cash, is that you do this via equity rather than debt, basically. Debt, you have to pay it back. Leave aside the thought about interest rates for the moment. If your cash isn't where it needs to be just yet, you hadn't better go taking on something else that will cause a bondholder to come banging on your uh, one of your, what did you say, 150 new doors uh, or something like that. I was interested in the fact that they're sort of mostly not franchised, uh, though. That's a kind of unusual uh, way of going about things. It, it is a very unusual way of doing it, but like I say, they're, they're modelling uh, on their current stores that they've got up in this decent decent margin. So they must just be thinking, if we can take that forward, this will be you know this will be this will be a decent business. Um, I I was looking down the list of um, sort of the franchise the company operated and it's strange really because at ipo when i first took a look at this company it was it was pretty much near as damn it more franchise than company operated but only by a little bit and then it's just been rocketing away in in, in company operated and, and you've got to wonder and there's not a lot of commentary on why they've chosen to solely focus on that you know you would think that if you were going to expand stores, one of the sensible things to do would be to say, okay, let somebody else build it and, you know, build the building mm. and we'll supply the, the marketing literature and the materials and you go and franchise run it. Plus we'll use, we'll use some of the cash we've generated to also build some because, you know, you're basically growing twice as fast that way, but they're choosing not to do that. And, um, I guess they just want more control over the product, the quality and the customer service. We said it's a kind of, uncommon way to do things and it's certainly an unintuitive way to do things i think it's also the way starbucks does things they are mostly owned as well rather than franchised i think they're almost entirely owned from what i can remember of them there's definitely a kind of move amongst these kind of places to do that and i guess one of the nice things about setting up uh, a dutch brothers outlet as opposed to say a burger king outlet which is more usually franchised is that i suppose it's i don't know them at all as a a place to be but i guess the startup costs are lower because you don't need a full kitchen basically yeah it is literally sometimes just a hut um with um with you know with a couple of coffee machines and a milkshake mm. machine um you, if you look at some of their um presentations online you look at the things and you think well you're not going to get many people in there and you realize it is almost just like a pickup lane but mm. from and it's anecdotal obviously this but if you ever look at dutch bros on twitter you'll see people complaining that the queues and the car queues are so long that they don't want to queue in that lane. And that's a nice problem to have for somebody like it's... this, especially in this kind of environment. So, I mean, we'll see how this continues. This could be one of those fads, you know, you know, the next the next Dutch Brothers comes along, Starbucks wins, and it's whoever comes in second. But I think Dutch Brothers is a, is a really interesting outfit. Yeah, it's fascinating that. I mean, it could be the case that they expand too fast, and especially in a fairly... A, a, Aside from what I said about the uh, setup costs being lower because you don't need a full kitchen or indeed that much stuff in it, and presumably operating costs are lower, it is still more expensive than franchising. And then that kind of brings with it a bit more risk. But nonetheless, I mean, it's a kind of attractive sort of business. Coffee in general, it seems to be sort of fairly robust, no pun intended, as a, um, a kind of thing that's likely to carry on chris hill was on our show and he said look i don't know what a lot of things in the future are going to look like but i do know that people will be drinking coffee in 10 years time and i've got a good idea of how they'll be getting it as well yeah true and obviously there's also the olive garden approach to come here where they could just sell off some of the buildings they own and uh, and you know to somebody like four corners who i'm sure would be happy to hoover them all up and mm -hmm. uh, give them a decent rate for them and they can continue building that way so there's plenty of ways to 
to, to build out in this business. It'd be interesting to see how they get on. It's a very small position in the money incinerator pie, which is a very small pie anyway. Um, but it's one that I perpetually look at and think it won't be one of the ones I cut anytime soon. Mm, how's the stock been doing lately? Uh, quite poorly, but it's just in the, oh, in the IPO, sort of, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, because it's in the IPO. It actually IPO'd at a pretty high price as well, which was to generate the sort of cash it needed to do the sort of growth it's done. So, uh, it, you know, I think they'll be shrugging their shoulders at that at the moment, saying like, well, we're a coffee outfit. We're not giving out much equity to anybody other than management. And if management are getting equity, they should see the bigger picture. Um yeah, I, do, I, don't, I don't have much else on that, Steve. Do you have much else? No, I'm all right with that idea. It does make me think that I will sit and watch this for a little bit then to see whether another kind of uh, a placement comes around. And if it does, perhaps take another look then. I mean, it feels like if we think there's likely to be needing cash to fund this, and that's likely to come via dilution rather than uh, via debt, either way around is, is tricky, I guess. But I'd rather wait for that to happen and then see where we end up than that's right beforehand. Yeah, that's my that's my point as well. I think if I was a buyer today, I would just be waiting to see how this plays out. I think the only time it could go wrong for you is if they started selling uh, assets to fund expansion, because I don't think the market will care about that too much. But I think if there's a decent-sized dilution or a decent-sized debt offering come on or a bond offering come on, I think we will see a drop in the share price, at which that might be time for an opportunistic investment. Mm. Okay, uh, we're pretty much approaching the hour. Should we leave it there, or is there anything else you were desperate to talk about? No, that's it, I think. Great, well then, that's our show. Thank you all very much for listening. I was Steve W, that's Steve D. Paul's not here, but unlike the Intel dividend, he will be coming back at some point in the future. We'll look forward to that, but for now, thanks very much, and we'll see you next time.